Heavenly Father, we love your word. We know that you have built your church upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles who spoke and wrote your word. And so we ask that you would set your spirit upon us today, that as we come to what you have inspired, that you would take it and put it deep within our hearts, cause it to transform our lives, that our lives together with this church, our life together might be built upon this solid rock. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Joash said to the priest, Collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord, the money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasurers, and let it be used to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. But by the twenty-third year of King Joash the priest still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and asked them, Why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasurers, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priests agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. He placed it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord. The priest who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the royal secretary and the high priest came, counted the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, and put it into bags. When the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. With it, they paid those who worked on the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and builders, the masons and stonecutters. They purchased timber and dressed stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, or any other articles of gold or silver for the temple of the Lord. It was paid to the workmen who used it to repair the temple. They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. The money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. About this time, Haziel, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his fathers, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace, and he sent them to Haziel, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. As for the other events of the reign of Joash and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo on the road down to Silla. The officials who murdered him were Josabad, son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, son of Shomer. He died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. In these verses, we see that all, at least as it appears, is as it should be. You, 
You have a son of David who sits on David's throne. You see that Joash's mother is from, is from Beersheba, and that's very good news because what has gotten the people of God into trouble in the past is when the queen mother, like Athaliah, had been from the northern kingdom. And Beersheba is in the far southern part of Judah. Beersheba is as far from the north as you can get and still be in the promised land. And so there's a a rightful queen mother. There's a rightful king who sits on the throne. And then to top it off, we read the glorious words, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. After six long years of the, the reign and the tyranny of wicked, murderous Athaliah. It's very hard to overstate just what a relief it would be to the people to be able to say, our king does what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as we come into these these first three verses, the introduction, we see, I think, one lesson and two warning signs. We'll, We'll start with the lesson. The lesson is that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord so long as he was mentored so long as he was instructed by Jehoiada the priest. You may recall Jehoiada from the last couple chapters that King Joash was the grandson of Athaliah and when his father when his father had been killed who was king his grandmother Athaliah decides that she wants to become queen and so she begins to exterminate all her own grandsons if you can imagine that but she misses one she misses Joash who's hidden off in a side room of the temple. Jehoiada is the high priest. So Jehoiada knows that Joash is there. He waits for the right time. When the boy is seven years old, he sets Joash on the throne. They proclaim him to be king. They put Athaliah to death. And all the people shout, Long live the king! But the king is only seven years old. And so he's an impressionable youth. He needs help in being king. And so what do they do? But Jehoiada becomes his instructor. Jehoiada becomes his his mentor. And as a result of his mentoring, Joash does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And the lesson to be, I think, very easily derived from this is that a good mentor, a good godly mentor, is worth his or her weight in gold. I'm really convinced that one of the great crises facing the American evangelical church is a lack of Christian discipleship and mentoring. And that is that we we are often pretty good at putting together programs. We can put together all different kinds of programs, some that bear fruit and others that don't bear nearly as much fruit, but we're far less enthusiastic and even far less able to take an older man and have him disciple a younger man and take an older woman, as Paul says to Titus, and have her instruct a younger woman. And we're good at programs. We're not good at personal discipleship and mentoring. And I think the issue is compounded by the fact that some of the older generations, two or three older generations among us, were themselves never discipled. And so it's, it's not only that there's an unwillingness, but perhaps there's even an unawareness that discipleship, personal mentoring, is something that should be going on in the church. And since it's not been done, we not only don't see it, but we don't know where to start. And so we have this, this church-crushing cycle 
where there is no teaching and training that happens on an individual level. And the only way to break that cycle is for those of us who are older and who weren't ourselves discipled intentionally to begin thinking about what that might look like. Maybe put down the remote, pick up a couple good books, and find someone who's younger than us who can benefit from discipleship and begin a relationship with them even if they don't need, know that they need to be discipled. But in my experience, <clears throat> as, as brief as it may be, in my experience with those who are, are younger is that they're very willing and even eager to be discipled by someone who is humble and holy and older than them who has something to offer. And we see that the great benefit of that came to Joash through the high priest Jehoiada. I think I was an under-discipled youth. I went through all the programs. I did Sunday school and vacation Bible school and youth group and Wednesday night catechism, which consequently was a benefit and I think would be a benefit again, seeing as how little knowledge of doctrine and truth there is among so many, even among us here. But, but all, all those things were, were not a substitute or were not adequate to account for every part of discipleship that needs to go into the formation of a boy and then a young man. But we need to have men who are able to disciple young men to teach them what it means to be a man of God. And it wasn't until I, it wasn't until I went to seminary, that is my third seminary, it wasn't until I went to my third seminary that I actually had a couple of men who took interest in me and who began to disciple me, one of, one of whom was my pastor. He would take me out for lunch. It, it wasn't brain surgery. It's not brain surgery. It's not even elbow surgery to be a mentor. You just take somebody out for lunch and ask them some questions, and you begin to talk to them, and he would ask me about what I was learning. We would talk about our studies. We would talk about what it looks like to be a pastor. We would talk about our families. We would talk about our, our mutual beliefs, even our mutual history. He was from Michigan, but we didn't hold that against him. We had a lot of heritage together, and so we, we enjoyed each other, and I benefited from him. He gave me opportunities to preach at the church and I was not a very good preacher I, I went back a couple weeks ago and, and was listening through to a sermon that I preached there and I had to turn it off after about seven minutes because I just couldn't I couldn't bear to think that I had preached like that once upon a time in my life but the but the pastor was gracious he gave me opportunity the people were merciful it wasn't in their best interest to have their pastor out of the pulpit and have me there but they knew that I would benefit and God willing one day you would benefit from my experience experience so you can thank them later but what we see is that it was then that I was discipled by someone who had been there and done that and then there was another man and his wife who discipled Melanie and I they had us into their home he was a classmate of mine they had seven children with their eighth on the way I'd never met anybody who had more than four kids except for my mother's family before that but they had us into their home almost weekly we would have dinner together, we would play games together, and we had opportunity to watch them as they raised their kids. You would have been amazed at how peaceful a home with seven children could be. And we were amazed, and so we observed them as husband and wife, and as mother and father, and as a godly family who had been there, and who had done that, and had done discipleship, and who did family worship, and we benefited. I, I would hate to see, I would hate to see the husband and the father and the pastor that I would be without those two men's experience and, and influence. But a young man or a young woman shouldn't have to move 600 miles away and get a theological education to be discipled. And so there is a need, and we need 
older ones of us to be able to pick up and to be able to take up the task of doing discipleship for those who are younger than us. And, and, and so it is with Joash. He needed Jehoiada. And for so long as Jehoiada was around, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But that brings us to our, to our two warnings. And the first of which is just that. The text says Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord so long as he was instructed by Jehoiada the priest. But that begs the question, what about when Jehoiada the priest is gone? What happens then? And then you have the line, the refrain, which is repeated oftentimes with the kings of Judah, but the high places were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifice and to burn incense there. It's sort of like a bright, sunny summer day, but you begin to see a wall of clouds off in the distance. It's not storming yet, but it seems as though it's a distinct possibility, and we'll come to that in time. But as you move into verses 4 to 16, you see what really forms kind of the, the body of the passage. And what is described then is the, the high point of the reign of, of Joash. And that is the, the rebuilding and the renovation of the temple. The temple, when Joash becomes king, is 124, 125 years old. And it is, to put it lightly, a fixer-upper. This is not the kind of fixer-upper you can put together in a, a couple months and put on the television with Chip and Joanna. This is, a, this is a building which is crumbling, it is old, and it has been looted. It is, has been robbed. You go over to, to 2 Chronicles 24 and you look at verse 7 and you read this. The sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and it also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So it's old, it's neglected, it's crumbling, it's been looted. The house of the Lord has seen better days. And Joash, under the leadership and influence of Jehoiada, goes about the work of rebuilding this temple. But neither Joash or Jehoiada really comes out, or any of the priests come out smelling like roses from this passage. Because the text says that it isn't until the 23rd year of the reign of King Joash that he went and took charge of the project because nothing was getting done. So Joash is in a, is in a problem no matter what happens. If, if, Joash, if Joash waited for 23 years to rebuild the temple, what in the world was he doing for over two decades? I mean, Joash grew up in the temple. If anybody should have known that the temple needed work, it should have been Joash. And if he started the work earlier, then why does he wait years and years and years and years and years before he notices the work isn't being done? I mean, he lives right across the mount from the temple. He should have been able to see when he walks over there or walks in there that things aren't as they should be. So he seems to be negligent. And he seems to be negligent, but the priests are worse. The priests seem to be downright lazy. They get all this money from these people. They get all these money, the, the census money comes in, the offering monies come in, and the voluntary gift money comes in, and yet nothing happens. They just store it up. They just store it up in the temple. You get, this, you get the sense, not that they're embezzling it, they just get the sense that they're lazy. Or maybe like a lot of churches, they're just slow. Maybe they couldn't decide on the color of the carpet for the main aisle or something. They, they just weren't getting anything done. And so Joash comes into the scene. He sees that nothing is getting done. And he says, all right, you guys, we're done with you. 
So he moves the priests off to the side. He brings in some work people, and he says, you are in charge of this project. Let's get going. And that's exactly what they do. They begin taking the money that's been given. They begin paying it out to workers. And these workers, they don't initially do any work with the, with the items or the gold or the silver inside the temple, but they get stone and timbers, and they do a major reconstruction project. This isn't like when we renovated the sanctuary a couple years ago, and it was, it was largely cosmetic. This is like the building itself is falling apart. And so they're going to reconstruct it and they're going to reinforce it so that the temple of the Lord doesn't actually collapse under its own weight. And this is the people that come out looking very good from the story though. It's the people who have charge of the money, the workmen. And they do their work with impeccable integrity. In fact, they have so much integrity that people don't even ask them to give an accounting of the money they've spent. That is not good practice for a church. But it speaks very plainly to the, to the level of quality and integrity which existed with these workmen. So great was their enthusiasm for the house of God that they did it with so much production that everybody who was there knew they were doing it the right way because of how much progress was being made with the funds which had been given to them. And so they go about the work of putting together the temple. And also the people look very good in the story. They give the offerings required in Leviticus 27 and Deuteronomy 16, but they go above and beyond what's required of them. They give voluntarily on top of that. Because they desire to see the house of the Lord restored. They want to see the worship of God restored. They've had enough of the Baals. They've had enough idols. They've had enough of spending time and rebelling against God. Now they want God to be glorified. And so they give above and beyond that God may be glorified. But the priests, they're not left out in the cold. The author wants us to be sure of that. And when you look at verse 16, it says that there's some offerings which were still given to the priests. And this allowed the priests to work full-time in the temple. It has probably been a long time since the priests could work full-time in the temple because there was bad king after bad king and kings which had neglected the temple. But, but finally now, the priests are able to work full-time in the temple. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul. You go over to Acts 18, and in Acts 18, you see Paul, and there he is, and he's working as a tent maker. Because Paul doesn't have enough funds of his own to be able to work full-time in ministry. And so he works part-time in ministry, and he works part-time making tents. But that's not Paul's ideal. As soon as, a, as soon as a gift comes in from some ministry partners which were away, Paul puts aside the tent making and goes back to full-time ministry. And that's what we see here with these priests. Now they're able to dedicate their entire time and effort and energy to the work of, to the, work of the worship of God's people. And so they are taken care of as well. And before we move on, though, I want us to just take stock of the grandness of what has happened. Because this, this building which has been restored, this, this is not just a house. It's not even just a church structure. This building which has been restored, this is the temple. The Ark of the Covenant which the Israelites carried with them for those 40 years in the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant sits here. 
The, the tablets of stone, which God cut out from His mountain and inscribed with His fingers, the Ten Commandments which He gave to His servant Moses, are inside that ark and inside this building. This is the building that houses the spears and the shields from the great King David. This is the building that the very presence of God dwelt in at its dedication. And this most magnificent, this most glorious, this most significant building now has been restored to the praise and the glory of God. Israel is once again faithful to her God. Praise God. But it doesn't last for long. And as you move into the next couple verses, you see that the story does not end very well. Look at me at verses 17 and 18. About this time, Hazael, king of Aram, that is Syria, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his fathers, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace. And he sent them to Hazael, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. You just kind of want to take your palm and slam it into your forehead when you read this. Isn't this exactly what's gotten the kings of, of Judah in trouble before? Isn't this exactly what almost got Joash killed? It was Joash's great-grandfather, Jehoshaphat, who, when he was threatened by a foreign king, decided he wasn't going to trust God. God had promised he would protect his people. God had promised he would preserve his people. But that wasn't good enough for Jehoshaphat. Instead, he decides he's going to marry his son off to Ahab's daughter so that together they can fight against a common enemy. And how did that work out? Well, Athaliah is that daughter, and she goes about trying to kill all of Jehoshaphat's great-grandfather sons because he didn't trust God. He trusted other kings. Now what does Joash do? He doesn't trust God. Instead he takes God's money from God's temple and pays it to a foreign pagan king. What should he have done? He should have turned to the Lord and said, Lord, deliver us. And would not God have answered as he had answered so many kings before? But that's not what he does. Instead, he has foolish faithlessness. And in this, where does he get the money to pay off this king? But he goes into the temple, which he has just restored. He goes into the temple and he takes all the, all the money that's in the temple, all the gold, even the instruments used for the worship of God, he takes all the, all the gold out of God's house and he sends it off. All these things which he had put in there, after they're done rebuilding the building, you hop over to Second Chronicles and it tells you that then they took the extra gold and the extra silver and they made it into things and they put them in the temple and now he takes it out. And he gives it to God's enemies to make them go away. He undoes his own greatest achievement. One, one scholar, R.L. Hubbard, put it this way, once a promising, God-fearing young ruler, Joash died of disappointment. By bribing Hazael with temple treasures, he tarnished his one great achievement. And then it gets even worse as you move into verses 19 to 21. As for the other events of the reign of Joash and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo on the road down to Silim. 
The officials who murdered him were Josabad, son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, son of Shomer. He died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Very precious few details in those three verses about what happened and why it happened and what went into it happening. You just have a very concerning trend. This is the second king in a row, second king of Judah in a row, who meets an unnatural death, who is killed before his time. You know, Joash becomes king when he's seven years old. You, you would think he would be able to reign far longer than 40 years. He should have had the longest reign of all the kings of Israel, but instead he's murdered, and he's not murdered by a foreign king. He's, he's murdered by some of his own officials. And the, the question is, why? Well, the other kings doesn't answer that question. The other kings wants to make other points, but I'm going to cheat. And I'm going to do something I haven't done before and probably won't do again, but I'm going to hop over to Second Chronicles chapter 24. You may or may not be familiar that the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles tell the same stories. And Kings tells them with some details and not others. Chronicles tells them with some details and not others. Oftentimes they do so to make different points that are complementary, that go together. And so to shine more light on these last three verses, I want us to turn over to 2 Chronicles 24, verses 15 to 25. The catch being that I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. The reason being, you can't find the NIV in our pew anywhere online. They don't print it anymore. They won't allow it to be published. And it's much easier to copy-paste than it is to retype everything in here. So the words will be on the screen. You can follow along in the pew Bible, but the words will be on the screen behind me that I'll be reading exactly. Verses 15 to 25 of Second Chronicles 24. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God in his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. And see how the Lord does see and avenge. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem. And destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Jehoiada dies, and just like that, Joash becomes an idolater. 
And then in his idolatry, he's spoken against. God mercifully sends prophets. And instead of listening to the prophets, one of those prophets being Jehoiada's son, he, he murders the son of his own mentor. Then, instead of heeding the warning when the foreign king comes with a small army and defeats his large army, he doubles down on his faithlessness and sends God's money off and sells out to get this king who has wounded him greatly to go away. And then disillusioned with the failure of this once promising king, his own officials kill him in the midst of his weakness and they put him to death. There's a sad irony here. When Jehoiada dies at the ripe old age of 130, when Jehoiada dies, he gets a royal burial. They bury this priest who was not a king. They bury him in the tombs of the kings as if he had been a king, though he wore no crown. But then when you come to Joash, who did wear the crown, when he dies, he's buried as if he had never been a king in the first place. Jehoiada the priest, treated like a king. Joash, so unworthy that he is not buried in the tombs, in the mausoleum of the kings. What a disappointment Joash is. We had such joy in Joash. When Joash was spared from death, the last of the sons of David to to be kept alive, when he's spared from death and hidden away by Jehoshaphat, his aunt, we rejoice. We rejoice when we see the, the seven-year-old Joash set on his father's throne and we see Athaliah dead. We rejoice in that. We rejoice when we, see, when we see Joash being mentored by Jehoiada. We rejoice to see the, the temple being built. We wanted to shout with the people when Joash becomes king, long live the king! Now the king is such a disappointment, we don't even want him buried with the kings. Joash had all the potential in the world, and he realized almost none of it. He's a classic case of it's not really how you start the race that matters, it's how you finish. Joash doesn't really finish at all. He's a waste of a king. He's a royal waste. Another commentator, Paul Arhouse, said it this way, Joash becomes proud and disloyal, even to the extent that he kills his mentor's son for preaching his mentor's message. It is harder to imagine a sadder case of moral failure. What a waste. He's a royal disappointment. And he's a warning. He's a warning to finish well. Paul is the opposite, isn't he? Paul is one who started so terribly wretchedly and finished so strongly. You go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the last of the letters that Paul writes when he's about to be put to death for Christ's sake. And he says in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul finished the race. He kept the faith. 
And when he, when he would die, he would receive a crown of royalty, the conquering king's crown from God himself. But there are lots of warnings in the scripture, lots of examples of those who started well and didn't finish. Judas followed Jesus for the better part of three years. And when it mattered most, he sold out. Died apart from the Lord. Or there's the example of Demas. You go just a few verses later in 2 Timothy 4, and Paul says this of Demas. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was a ministry partner of Paul. He went on Paul's journeys from place to place to place, and he would be there to support Paul in the the work of the ministry. But then, when it matters most, he's gone. Why? Because he loved the things of this world. He chose the things of this world. He chose money over the gospel. He didn't finish his race. I have an example from my own life as well. My own mentor, the man who, who taught me and who mentored me, my, my pastor from seminary. He not only taught me to preach, but I, I think he, he taught me what preaching is. He taught me how to preach with conviction. He even taught me that preaching was supposed to have conviction. And right now, he is in prison somewhere in Alabama. He committed adultery. He destroyed his family. He left the gospel behind and embraced the anti-gospel of theological liberalism. And he was arrested just a couple months ago for pimping and possessing materials involving images of children. What a disappointment. He started so well. So many things going for him. He had an excellent education. He went to the same seminary I did. Excellent education. He had had a church. He, He preached the gospel. He had the word. But now, it's all gone. Now thankfully, his race is not over yet. There is still opportunity, God willing, that he will turn and finish the race. But what a waste. What a disappointment. There's two very simple lessons in here. I think they're really just one lesson with two points. The first is that if your hope is in, in men, you will be disappointed. Look at Joash. Such promise. Such, such power. So much, so much opportunity. But if your hope was in Joash, the temple reconstructing king, you were crushed in the end disillusioned like his servants who resorted to murdering him rather than living with him anymore. Aren't there all kinds of examples in our own lives of that same kind of thing? You look around the church landscape, you have preachers from Moody Radio who end up being near psychopaths. You have pastors off around the world in big churches who are falling all over the place, scandal after scandal. If, If your hope is in your pastor... If your hope is in the the guy on the radio or the guy on the television, you're going to be disappointed at some point in time. Any hope placed in men is bound at some point ultimately to disappoint. The only hope which does not ultimately disappoint is hope which is placed in Christ, who is the perfect king. One gets the sense when when you read through the account of Chronicles 
one, one gets the sense that the chronicler wished that Jehoiada had just been king. Why couldn't this man, I mean, we, we buried him in the royal tomb. Why couldn't he just be the king? Why couldn't we have the, the priest king? Why do we have to have the boy king? But of course, it had to have the boy king because a son of David has to sit on David's throne. That's what God had promised. And so you come and you, you just wish, well, I, I wish we could have had a priest king. When we come to Christ, that's what we find. We find one who is prophet, priest, and king. He is a priest, not a Levite like Jehoiada, but he's a priest, as the author of Hebrews says, in the order of Melchizedek. This very mysterious character from, from Genesis who is both priest and king. So Jesus is a priest, and he is a son of David. And not only that, but Jesus excels Joash in every way. Jesus doesn't just rebuild a temple structure. Jesus is himself the temple. Jesus is the place where God dwells in perfect unity with His people. Jesus is the perfect union between man and God. And Jesus doesn't rebuild a temple. Jesus raises the temple from the dead. If your hope is not in that resurrected Christ, you have no hope. But He will not disappoint. The author of Hebrews says that very plainly. Hebrews 7, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, to perfection, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There is one who will not disappoint. Paul says in Romans as well, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Joash was a royal disappointment. But Jesus never disappoints. And if, unlike Joash, your hope is in Him, and if, like Paul, you finish the race, then, like Jehoiada, you die with divine honor. And if your hope is in Christ, then, like Him, one day you'll be raised in glory. Let's pray. God, we desire to have our hope placed nowhere else other than Christ. Not in princes or kings. Not in priests like Jehoiada. Not in pastors or celebrities. We desire for our hope to be in Christ and in Christ alone. For He alone saves. And He alone is the perfect King. And He alone has conquered the grave. And He alone never disappoints. So we ask that you would change our hearts, that our hope would be in him, and only in him. And God, give us the grace to not fall to the trap of Joash or Judas or Demas or countless others who've gone before. 
But give us the grace to be like Paul, the other apostles, who finished the race, fought the good fight, kept the faith, that we together with them might receive the conqueror's crown placed upon our brow by the great king himself. Amen.